Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. We're all in this together. David Cameron's statement after the financial crash of 2008 to try and show a more caring, sharing Conservative Party. Cameron's solution was the big society, a bold new spirit of voluntarism where individuals would volunteer in the community taking up the slack from the state. The results were widely ridiculed, with even one of the government's own pilot areas, Liverpool, pulling out of the programme after less than a year. The big society was quietly shelved after a series of critical reports. But what can we learn from this bold experiment? Here to shed some light on it is Peter John, Professor of Public Policy and Head of the School of Politics and Economics at King's College London. Welcome to The Bunker, Peter. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. Could you um, perhaps start off by taking us through who argued for the big society and why? Yes, I think it's important to look at these things in context. The origins of the big society kind of go back to, in a sense, the the history of conservatism in the 1970s and 80s, and after the you know experiment with a kind of more market-driven kind of public policy uh, under Margaret Thatcher, and then a period where the conservatives went you know were rather unhappily in conflict. There was a move to rethink conservatism and to present a, a slightly different offering to the public. Uh, and when David Cameron became leader, this was very much his prospectus to refresh conservatism and come up with some new ideas to present to the uh, electorate, which were not quite so harsh, not quite so market driven. And in fact, reach back to an older form of conservatism. And arguably, you could say that the Thatcher government never quite abandoned society. But going back to the you know the history of sort of conservative thinking, you know, such as the you know the famous thinker Edmund Burke, conservatives, and it's also implied by the word conservatives, are very interested in the associations, the patterns of community life, which form up the fabric of societies. So it's no surprise that uh, a conservative uh, leader should want to reach back and give these ideas a kind of new label, um, so that when they came into office in 2010, they had a kind of uh, a particular kind of program to put into effect. Yes, and David Cameron seemed very keen to try and feed in some of those conservative themes. I remember he used to uh, use this, I don't know whether it's a, a repositioning point, but he used to argue that Margaret Thatcher's famous statement, there is no such thing as society, which should be corrected to, there is such a th- thing as society, but it's not the same thing as the state. Yeah, there's obviously glibness in slogans, and parties need to be able to simplify uh, what they're doing. But I think there was uh, quite a lot of thought going into it. And also it connected with Cameron's more general approach, his kind of more caring approach in kind of social policy. It also relates a little bit to a kind of Thatcherite concern with uh, looking at alternatives to the state. And obviously, once the big society got developed, it was also the period of fiscal austerity when the state was likely to withdraw from certain activities. So the idea that you would would point to self-help to communities also fitted in with this other stream of, of conservatism. But yes, there were slogans and, and that is kind of 
what we expect. Yes, I mean, you you mentioned um, fiscal austerity. How much was the big society really rooted in being a a short-term response to the 2008 financial crash? How much was it around the electoral coalition for the Conservatives, of course, rediscovering a popular type of conservatism after the 97 defeat in the sort of long 13-year march to power? I think it was a combination of those things. I think it was a shift in in thinking. Uh, I remember going to hear a talk by Oliver Letwin in that kind of period, sort of 2006 or so, when he was looking to develop these sort of ideas. So these things happened before the financial crash. I think the financial crash concentrated minds. They told the world that, you know, the economists didn't have all the kind of solutions to kind of public policy. Obviously, the crash involved uh, some degree of constraint in public policy, in, in public expenditure. And the outgoing Labour government had already put into plan quite harsh cuts. But I think once the Conservatives got into power, they sort of embraced the need to have fiscal fiscal austerity. And that, in a sense, um, allowed them to put forward the ideas of the big society sort of more prominently and to see that as a sense of complement to that rather harsh message, which potentially can be electorally Right, and and that's an important point, I think, the degree to which there were already deep cuts that were being set in motion by a Labour government saying, we don't want to do this, but we're going to have to do this, as opposed to a sense of ownership of a Conservative government that said, well, actually, we can make this work, or we believe this is not as bad as it may seem for these reasons. You've mentioned Burke, you've mentioned Thatcher. Um, Are the sort of earlier ideological roots of the big society peculiarly British, or is there more of an international dimension in the sort of influences on this? Well, I think it goes back to the heart of, of, of democracy, that within democracy, there are various tensions. Some people want democracy to be mainly about elected representatives, and the electorate give those, those elected representatives a mandate, and then they get judged uh, at a period after that. There's a stronger tradition going back to ideas of direct democracy, back to the Greeks, that suggest that direct involvement is, is kind of very important, either as a complement or as a, as a substitute for representative democracy. Now, these ideas of civic engagement are a long way from direct democracy. They're more about voice, they're more about consultation, and they're also about trying to get citizens to do uh, things for society. But you can see these kind of strains, which these are worldwide strains within democratic thinking, And there's been a sort of renaissance of alternative democratic mechanisms, different forms of kind of budgeting in Brazil or Spain. But I think it took a particular turn within the the British kind of context, partly, I think, because of the kind of critique of sort of centralized, sort of distant government by Whitehall Mm. and a feeling amongst politicians uh, a need to kind of reconnect with citizens. And the prior Labour government were very, very keen to promote these ideas. Mm. Uh, so there was this term, there's lots of these terms which we've, we, we kind of forget these days, but the term civil renewal yeah. was an idea which was promoted in quite a similar sort of way, and it had sort of funding and, and sanction yes. from the Home Office. That's interesting, this sort of critique of uh, how the man in Whitehall always knows best, this argument from the 1960s, was already something, you know, 60 years ago that was seen as one of the deep problems of British politics. We've talked a bit about the underlying ideas behind the big society, but how did it actually translate into substantive policies? Yes, well, once they're elected, then it became the task of government departments to put this into place. So, prominent on that was communities and local government. 
it really made sense to engage with some of the more decentralized units, such as parish councils, uh, to promote things like community ownership. They set up the sort of big capital ownership fund. There was a, a big initiative to encourage kind of volunteering and, and civic engagement. And these involved, you know, obviously involved expenditure at a time of uh, fiscal austerity, but not so eye-watering kind of sums. Uh, this was not an attempt to kind of completely recalibrate the whole institutions of the state. It really was these kind of special purpose sort of policies which were designed to show that the government was serious about the idea. And there were several things going on at the same time, because on the one hand, you have the Localism Act, which is really quite far-reaching on the face of it in terms of the powers that are uh, given to local councils, in terms of, for example, they can uh, you know, see something as a community asset. But on the other hand, this coincides with a major period of deep, deep cuts, which are then exacerbated in successive years. So you are almost defunding the project at the same time as we're implementing it. Absolutely. And critics were very quick at the time to, to make those points, particularly as the main target for the cuts was elected local government, which suffered cuts of something like 40%, much higher than other mm. public sector organisations such as central government departments. And local authorities were the main funders of sort of voluntary sector organisations. So at the same time the government was trying to encourage more community involvement, the very organisations which were in a position to kind of help that mm. were finding life much, much more difficult. And these things largely eclipsed the, these more kind of targeted initiatives. And also in terms of public debate, they really sort of undermined the credibility of the big society because it didn't seem to kind of stack up with this kind of wider set of policy changes. What about one of the many tensions around this that people can have very different ideas of what a community looks like? I mean, for example, Eric Pickles, who was community secretary, um, his background as leader of um, Bradford City Council, his argument was very much the ideal Conservative Council meets once a year to dole out contracts that they can then subcontract out the functions of the state to. Uh, and that's a bit of a caricature, actually, as to how he conducts himself in government. But there are very, very different ideas of what we mean when we say communities. Absolutely, community is contested. And, and to me, I think that's quite healthy that we can actually discuss amongst ourselves what it is to be a community, who should be members of it, uh, who should have a say over doing it. Uh, and obviously, governments come in with particular... Uh, approach to public policy, particular sort of ideologies, and that obviously affected the way in which the big society was set up. So you don't see any mention of trade unions mm-hmm. within the within the kind of design principles yep. of the big society. Um, I do think though within the big society, I think there is, and I think the conservatives do have a reasonable record of this of a culture of kind of inclusion and recognizing sort of multiculturalism. So I don't think these things are kind of ruled out of the big society, mm. but obviously it's a, it's a mainly conservative-led government. They obviously put their own kind of stamp on it. Uh, and obviously this means that taking these ideas forward, not only was there the problem of credibility, but it's no surprise that, the, you know, the t- I, mean, I mean, even Cameron kind of walked, walked away from it, as, as you said, in, in the entry, the, the idea was quietly forgotten. Now we can discuss amongst ourselves whether because of the kind of attractiveness of thinking about communities. And I think the importance of thinking about communities, I think it's a good thing for governments to to think about, you know, how to get people involved, that it's not just a one-way street between citizens and governments. 
but they're not going to use the same kind of terms because those terms have become sort of contaminated uh, by the particular debates uh, at, at the time. And just like you know, Cameron wasn't going to kind of call it civil renewal. Um, you know, future governments will call these things different. But when we look at them more carefully, often some of the very same policies are being enacted. So, for example, at the moment, there's the big community assets fund, which has been set up partly to deal with this sort of levelling up issue. So, in actual fact, local communities, they can still bid for funds to save their local pub. So, it's the same sort of policies, but the names have all changed. Branded differently. We think of the big society and its language of very much being this Cameron-era Tory idea. But hasn't Labour actually come up with some fairly similar proposals? I mean, there's been similar sort of rhetoric from Morris Glassman's or even Keir Starmer. Absolutely. And this has a very long history. I mean, the Labour is often associated with kind of status sort of policies, the policies of the 1945 elected government. But in actual fact, there are alternative traditions within socialist thinking, particularly the work of kind of Lasky and the kind of pluralists in the interwar period. And my former colleague at Birkbeck, uh, Paul Hurst, wrote this great book called Associative Democracy, where he went back and reread a lot of these old classics uh, and came up with this term, associative democracy, to actually have a, a different way of thinking in, in left terms about the role of society, associations, and volunteering. And it's no surprise that, that Paul was, was, you know, very much listened to by Labour thinkers so uh, at the time. This is really interesting because this is one of those areas where this was very contested at the time. I mean, the opposition really laid into conservative government over the element of, you know, this masking cuts and so on. But this idea that actually what's proposed as a constructive alternative might not be that different. Well, this is often, you know, this is, we, you know, we live in a, a, a two-party system where there's great credibility in sort of throwing, throwing, you know, things at the opposition. When you often look at governments, they often have similar sets of constraints. It doesn't come as a surprise to me. I suppose the danger is the classic danger of British politics of things being changed around very quickly, uh, programs set up and then shut down and then reset up again. And I think it would be better if the opposition parties could agree on, on, on a few things, because I think that would sustain these things longer term, particularly on the funding side. I think you know, a lot of voluntary organisations do need to plan ahead. Mm. And I think if government's going to chop and change so much, it, it, just makes, it just makes that. And also, I think community building is a long-term as we all know from studying kind of volunteering how people get involved with volunteering, but people quite often drop out, they get disillusioned. So I think we need to think about ways to kind of support people sort of long term. And I think that's really sort of, you know, can be independent of sort of party politics. I was going to ask about how the, the credibility of the big society seems to have always been under attack, um, even before it was launched. I mean, it, it was first sort of mooted by Cameron as a theme around, I think it was March of 2010, just before the election. It's actually announced as a government policy in July. Um, was there a particular turning point in attitudes to the big society? I don't think it was a particular turning point, partly because I think the, the critics were out really from, from the start. Um, and I think you know the key. I think the key events were the you know the uh, you know the early budgets of the of the two thousand tens, and I think it was more a sort of gradual moving away. Um, so that kind of by you know two thousand even as as early as two thousand and thirteen, Cameron wasn't really referring to the term in, in, in speeches. So maybe in the kind of fast moving world of, of of party politics, you know, the term may have had some use in the two thousand and ten election. Okay, some policy was, was set up. But 
Obviously, lots of other things were going on. It proved to be rather embarrassing. I mean, also, it proved to be a, a target of kind of satire. Yes. satire. I, so, I, I remember a, there was a great Newsnight program. Uh, I think Steve, Steve Smith, the journalist, is, it, was, is, uh, it was very, very funny in terms of talking to people about volunteering for local libraries and finding that people weren't really willing to do it. And I think, you know, as one of those sort of ideas, particularly to do something quickly, it was easily targeted and ridiculed. Mm-hmm. I think, it, I think it, it, it deserved that. And, and obviously, if something's ridiculed, then, you know, senior politicians are, are, are going to distance themselves from it. And obviously, it never was essential to the conservative project. So it could easily be sort of walked away from without some massive dramatic sort of dropping. Yes, well, so satire can be a lot more deadly than a serious attack. Um, does anyone seriously advocate for the big society now? I don't see the term. And actually, I think you, you, you contacted me by, by by finding a book review, which I did at the time. And mm. I think I said that a big society is probably a bit like one of those terms that, you know, 10, 15 years time, people aren't going to remember. You know, for people who follow politics closely, you know, we do remember. But I, I don't think the term is around at all. And one person we haven't really discussed is the architect almost of, of the big society, Steve Hilton, who was David Cameron's special advisor, who really developed the policy. Some of our listeners, I think, might wince slightly at one of your earlier comments about the more inclusive strand of conservatism. Steve Hilton was seen as being this sort of cuddly, inclusive, middle-of-the-road conservative, you know, who didn't wear uh, shoes around the office and would wander around in a T-shirt and be uh, somebody who went off to become a tech bro in California. Um, He's since then become a uh, full supporter of Donald Trump. I know. I mean, I think people go on journeys, don't they? And I suppose if people have been on a journey, then you might look a bit critically at what they were arguing those those years ago. Um, Obviously, I think advisors are savvy people. They know that they need to come up with with ideas that please their their political principles. So I'm sure Steve Hill was no exception to that. I think the Conservatives needed to say something different at that point in time. They needed to sort of put a distance to, you know, being the so-called nasty party. Steve Hilton was obviously encouraged in doing that, but um, it's hard to get into somebody's mm. head sometimes to see whether they they really believed it or not. How do you think the big society will actually be remembered? I think the satire plays a, a big role. As we've discussed, I think that's, that's a kind of shame because it might sort of discourage people from from trying out these ideas. And in sort of labour circles, the idea of encouraging community involvement is not inconsistent with you know greater public expenditure, mm. and that any sort of social service does need a positive relationship with citizens. But I think, fortunately, I think it's been more or less uh, forgotten. Maybe this podcast might have the opposite effect. You know, I think some of the kind of core ideas, hopefully, uh, which it drew upon, uh, still remain as public policy tools today. Thank you very much, Peter. That's all very insightful. And um, you're currently working on uh, several more things on Nudge, I believe. Yes, I'm trying to develop uh, and actually Nudge actually comes out of the what doesn't come out of the Conservative uh, Liberal government, but I mean they really embraced it with the kind of Nudge unit. And again, it's a sort of supposed to be a sort of you know a soft a softer kind of intervention. Uh, but nudges themselves are often seen as sort of top down paternalistic, mm. um, trying to get people to do things without them really being aware of it. So what we're developing is a new kind of deliberative public policy we call Nudge Plus, mm. where we're trying to get people to debate and think about the nudges. And in some ways, it's it's a little bit related to some of the themes we've talked about today in terms of ensuring there is also community involvement as well as state intervention. Fascinating. And thank you as ever for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back only too soon with another edition for your curiosity.
And if you enjoy the podcast, don't forget that you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now, Origin Story, Rock and Roll Politics, We Are History, and our morning offering, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Seth Tavoff. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by James Parrott. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.